Blog Talk Radio. Corralis Radio. Um, we're brought to you by Repti-Racks Incorporated for all your reptile needs. RBO has you covered. Uh, whether it's cages, racks, husbandry, husbandry equipment, veterinary-grade disinfectants, or everything in between, look no further. Remember, Repti- Reptile Basics is the reptile breeder's one-stop for success. Check them out on Facebook or the web at www.reptilebasics.com. Um, just wanted to... Uh, uh, do another show with you guys. Um, this one has kind of been a, a little bit of a long one coming. We've been trying to get this particular vet, uh, guest on on the show for a long time. Um, pretty much anybody uh, who's into Corrales uh, 
um, heard of Tony Nikolai, but um, we wanted to bring him on to uh, kind of get into more of like where um, the northern Emerald Tree Boas and the Amazon Basins kind of kind of pick his brain on what it was like in the old days, how they got into the hobby. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit more about um, how he got into uh, working with these animals, um, more of, you know, really just kind of, there's not a whole lot of breeders that are currently working with these animals. So we're wanting to uh, make sure we can um, kind of give everybody some historic accounts of how they really got into the hobby. And uh, Tony was one of the only uh, breeders working with uh, northern and basin emerald tree boas, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And uh, we wanted to, to bring him on. Um, I think anybody who's into these animals has heard of Tony. They're, they're working with bloodlines that originated with him. Um, so it's kind of going to be a little bit of a history lesson for everybody. So hopefully uh, the listeners will find it um, entertaining and um, we can shed some light on maybe a few uh, ideas that people have had about, you know, how they came in, what it was like working with, you know, these green tree boas um, uh, back, you know, in the 90s, possibly the 80s, um, early 2000s. Um, and uh, also, you know, what's been going on with Tony? You know, he kind of dropped off the map for a little bit, and we want to hear from him and see what's been going on with him and where his head's at. And and uh, anyway, we're honored to have him on the show. So uh, at this time, we'll go ahead and bring Tony on. Tony, are you there? Hi, Jeff. Yep, I'm here. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How about yourself? I'm doing good myself. Uh, it's kind of nice uh, back on a Sunday afternoon, probably evening for you back in Florida. Yeah, yeah, about eight o'clock here. Great. So, um, I'm personally uh, pretty excited to have you on the show. I've wanted to have you on for a long time, um, but uh, you know, before we really get into the uh, nuts and bolts of of the show, um, I was hoping that maybe you could just give the listeners um, and myself a little bit of an introduction as to uh, you know how you kind of got into reptiles and then maybe segue into how you got into, uh, you know, caninus and bait side. Um, okay. I, um, actually I heard about the big, uh, reptile breeders expo that was going on in Daytona. And I went down there, um, and saw all these, you know, all these people working with all these different snakes and, all the babies, and I was just blown away. And um, that was the very first one. I don't remember what year it was. It was either like 89 or 90. And um, I ended up picking up a couple of um, Pueblin milk snakes, um, I think a Sinaloan. Uh, I always wanted a reticulated python, so I bought a, a baby reticulated python. And um, Kind of the rest is, is history. I, I, uh, I, I realized at that point that uh, you could get pretty much anything you want. And my, my favorite snake always growing up were emerald tree boas. I remember seeing a picture in a Time Life book when I was just a little boy uh, of an emerald in, uh, in the jungle. And I was just, just fascinated by it. So I started kind of, you know, poking around and seeing what I could find. 
And um, I actually found uh, a couple of emeralds, so I started, I bought those and um, started keeping those and was just, was just thrilled with them. You know, I, I can remember watching in amazement the first time I fed this thing, you know, and, and how, it, how they eat, you know, upside down, you know, for the gravity of the food item to kind of help work its way into the throat, you know. And, and if it kind of would, would fall down, they would kind of, you know, wrap it back up and, and turn back upside down again to where they, you know, had a better grip and, and again, where gravity would help, you know, work it down its throat. And I was just fascinated. I can remember just sitting there for, you know, literally holding this perch, watching this emerald crawl slowly around how they, you know, if you've ever watched them, how they crawl into their coil, how they crawl into their sleeping coil, you know, and then it just kind of comes to a rest, you know, and I was just, just fascinated from the get-go with them. And um, I remember I, 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 um, I got a hold of Tom Crutchfield. I had met Tom Crutchfield. And uh, this is when Suriname had just opened, reopened up, and Tom was getting in a bunch of northern emeralds, and uh, he got in 75, and I was literally, I kept, I kept calling up like every day, when are they coming in, when are they coming in? And I was literally down there and helped them unpack these, these boxes, and you wouldn't believe how they came in. They were in these little tiny boxes about a foot by a foot by about five inches tall, and you'd open this box, and there'd be three there'd be two to three five-foot snakes in there. I mean, it was unbelievable how they packed wow. these snakes in these boxes. And um, I can remember me and Tom both got bit that day. I got a nasty bite right on the, right on the palm of my hand uh, by a big female. And, I mean, when these things bite, it's like, it's like hot needles going into your skin. I mean, it's like no other bite I've ever experienced. And I've been bit by a lot of stuff. But uh, it's literally like hot needles going into your skin. It's, it's unbelievable. And uh, I think Tom said he got bit in the stomach. I don't remember that, but I, don't, I remember literally put, pulling the snake out of these, uh, these little tiny boxes. And um, they were just, they were really pretty snakes coming in from Suriname. And I ended up picking up a, a, a pair, actually two pairs of uh, northerns. These were all northerns. There were, there were no basins to be found. In fact, I didn't even know what a basin was at that time. And um, took these things back, and I kept remembering though in the back of my in the back of my mind, and I didn't even ask Tom at the at the time uh, because it didn't even dawn on me. But I, I can remember when I was like a teenager going over to somebody's house, and they had a corner terrarium with some, he- and I mean heavy striped uh, Amazon basins in them. And again, this was when I was a teenager, so this was you know 30 years ago or some or, or more, and. Um, well, I kept thinking, well, what, where did the, you know, what's the deal with these striped animals? And I asked Tom about it, and he told me that they were from, you know, Amazon, and, and, and they weren't, you know, they didn't come in. Uh, they weren't legally imported at that time. And, um, but I just kept poking around and poking around and, uh, and finally ended up uh, uh, finding some. But th- that's, that's a story we'll get into in just a minute. But, but so I took these, these northerns home, and, uh, you know, I, I literally kept them in the garage, and I can remember, you know, it was, it, was, um, it was pretty chilly in the garage. I had, like, heat lamps on them. I had them in, like, wire cages. You know, I had no idea what I was doing at the time. You know, I knew they needed to be hot, and I knew they needed to be humid. And uh, so I kept them in, like, a big wire cage in the garage. And I had the – it was winter, so I had a blanket wrapped around the cage, and I had a heat lamp on it, a couple of heat lamps probably. And uh, I can remember going in there one evening, and uh, it was like 50-something degrees in there, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And I, and I lifted back the blanket, and they were breathing. I mean, just locked up. 
And uh, so I was, you know, I was like, oh, my God, I didn't even know what I was doing, you know, but uh, I got lucky. And um, that very that very next year, I produced two, I had two females, and I produced two batches of babies, beautiful babies from these uh, northerns. And uh, I had gotten, again, I kind of liked, you know, a lot of variety. So when I, I had picked out some of the lightest color ones I could find, and I also picked out there was a couple that were just super, super dark forest green, and I picked those out. And what I found with, uh, uh, immediately with those babies were that the babies kind of uh, got the ground color of the parents as well. That's, that's genetic as well as the gra- a lot of the ground color is. Um, so I went back to the expo that following year with about 10 or 11 year, nice, year, beautiful yearling uh, northerns for sale. And that's actually when I met one of my uh, best and longest uh, friends, Eddie Marino. And I'm, I'm sure everybody out there that knows emeralds knows Eddie now. Um, probably has the nicest but, collection yeah. in the world of, of, of emeralds. And um, he's been working with emeralds for as long as I was. He actually had a batch of babies, I think, the same year I did. And he was showing me pictures at the expo. And uh, typical for Eddie, you know, he kept, like, I think he had, like, 17. That was a huge batch of babies. I think it was, like, 17 babies or something like that. And he ended up keeping, keeping like, 16 of them or something and raising them up. But they were I don't really think anything's changed. Babies. No, no, I think he still does that. <laughs> he still does that's that, funny. absolutely. Yeah, he'll hold but back like it. almost every I, one of his babies. That's how I got started in him. That's cool. So, you know what's interesting to me? If, if you look back on um, some of the guys that kind of pioneered certain species, like, um, you know, you look at, uh, or maybe I should rephrase that, guys that probably either pioneered or had some of the nicer animals in the older days when other mm-hmm. folks just had maybe subpar, a lot of the guys would go down and pick out these shipments. shipments. I know that, um, like, Matt LaRere, for instance, had some amazing uh, Amazon tree boas. Well, he was going through a lot of these shipments that would come in through South Florida, and he was just handpicking some of the best animals. So it's kind of interesting to see you, you know, hear you talk about doing that because, uh, I, I think that back then that was the way to, to really get the good stuff. Oh, it, ab- it absolutely no was. And Matt, and Matt had a uh, – Matt only lived like 30 minutes away from some of the biggest importers in the, in the world, you know, with Strictly, you know, down there. And uh, he would go down there, right. like you said, and would just hand-pick through the shipments. Yep. And, and so now you did, you – did you start with emeralds or, or – were you working with green tree python? Because a lot of people know you from your high yellow animals uh, with green tree pythons. So were you working with those prior I, to the emeralds? Or did, sorry, go ahead. No, I started, I started with the emeralds. Again, I started, again, with just, uh, you know, a couple of colubrids. And, and I, got a, I think I got maybe six months later I got my first emerald. And, uh, right. and a, a very short time later I ended up, you know, just kind of specializing in those. But... Um, I did, uh, I worked with them probably for about three or four years and, um, maybe a couple years. I, 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 the green tree pythons caught my eye right away. And at that time there were very few people breeding these things, you know? Um, right. And I can remember going, I, I, uh, I was invited over to Eugene Bissett's place and, uh, I can remember going over there and looking through all of his, uh, green tree pythons and, um, and it was almost the last cage I looked in, I saw this high yellow animal, this 
this yellow with this olive. Any other color on it was olive. That was the only two colors on this snake. And uh, I was just blown away. I had no idea that they even came in any, you know, any, any other colors but, you know, pastel greens, you know. And um, so I, I ended up buying a, another snake from him. And like six months later, I ended up calling him and making him an offer on that snake. And uh, it included uh, some cash and a couple of uh, really nice, you know, pick-the-litter kind of baby northerns that I had. And uh, I was surprised when he went ahead and took it. And uh, so that kind of started me off with the green tree pythons. But, again, I was always looking for the really unusual colored stuff, you know. Um, right, not the green so stuff. So I think him, no, not, not so much the green stuff. I mean, I love the green stuff. My first one that I bought from him was a, was a green animal with, like, a blue stripe, you know, a nice sarong animal. And, um, but I think Gary Sipperly, that's an old name. I'm not even sure if Gary's still, still doing anything. But uh, he was producing some stuff that had some real nice, again, sarong, real nice speckled yellow stuff. Uh, so I ended up, you know, picking out a few things and got lucky. Uh, and, um, you know, a couple of those babies turned out really, in fact, one of them turned out just really exceptional. And, um, again, that stuff was kind of genetic, you know, and I, I, I started, uh, uh, you know, and then kind of w- once the word got out as well, um, you know, people would call me and say, hey, I've got this, this real nice high yellow green tree python, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking to get rid of it and sell it. And, and you know, so I, I started accumulating a few of these animals and, um, so I worked with them for a long time. I, I really loved them. And, um, but I'll tell you, for me, when you take an, an emerald, a beautiful Amazon basin out into the sun, the iridescence will just blow you away. I mean, they're just, the texture, they have a texture to them, and they have an iridescence to them, and they just, they, to me, they're just more impressive. So I ended up, you know, I, at this time, you know, I'm, I'm pretty much out of room. <laughs> so I ended up uh, right. selling my home yellow collection just to kind of specialize in the emeralds at that point. So how long were you working with green tree pythons before you uh, sold them to make room for more emerald tree boas? And then I'm also curious um, what kind of uh, – set the northerns apart from the basins to you as far as as preference and things that you liked about so I guess that's a two-part question so first you know how long were you working with the chondros before you moved them out and then when you started accumulating more emeralds because that's what you wanted to work with what kind of was the deciding factor on do I want to get more basins or do I want to get more northerns well I worked with the green tree pythons for I don't know probably um 12, 13, 14, I really have no idea, but it was somewhere, it, it, was, quite a, it was quite a number of years because I had, I had bred, um, you know, several generations of those things. So it was probably 12 to 15 years, something like that. Um, and then I got rid of those, but I'll, I'll back up for one second. Uh, I have a real interesting story of how, uh, because at this time, again, there were no Amazon basins in the country. Um, the National Zoo, the, the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., Trooper Walsh was working there at the time. They had a couple of animals, and I talked to Trooper, and he told me that he didn't think that they were even viable at that point. They were so old. And, uh, of course, they weren't coming in um, at this point. So it was, it was at, at about my probably third or fourth expo, the, again, early 90s, something like that, um, 
I, on the way home, me and my wife stopped in this little tiny zoo in Central Florida, I think called the Central Florida Zoo. Um, and I just happened, we were looking in the reptile room, and there was a, a keeper in there um, cleaning cages. And, uh, you know, so I kind of, you know, just knocked on the door. I wanted to just talk to him. And, and uh, he came out, and we started talking. And, you know, he was asking me what I was interested in, and I told him emeralds. And, you know, I told him, I, you know, from a childhood, I remember these striped emeralds and stuff. And he says, oh, I got a couple in the back. And my jaw about hit the floor because, I mean, I had been looking for these things for years, and nobody had any. Uh, Tom uh, Crutchfield, ex you know, kept expecting to get some in, but it, but it never materialized. And when he told me he had some in, in the back room, I literally wasn't planning on leaving there until he showed them to me. <laughs> so luckily I didn't have any trouble getting him to take me back there and show them to me. But uh, I can remember just looking at them, you know, just walking back there, and they were in a little cage, and I can remember the, the, the male had his little head hanging down about a, a, you know, a couple inches past his coils, and I, the first thing I saw was this bright gold chin. And uh, I was just like, wow, that's just totally different. And, again, I was all about variety and, and, and keeping anything different. And, uh, you know, they were just, you know, as you know, they're just totally different than the northerns. You know, they, uh, even the weakly marked ones, you know, you know, have a weak stripe. They're just, you know, the, the, the Surinams, the northerns, the Guyanas, they just don't have any – remnant of a stripe at all so they're just completely different right. and um so i basically left my name and number with that guy he says yeah there's a, there's a guy who's got a few of them and he brings them in every now and then and i literally left my number with him and i kept calling about every few months and and leaving my number again <laughs> trying to get a hold of this guy and then one day out of the blue i get a phone call from this guy and um and he told me that he had a couple that he was going to be letting go and uh, so that's how it all started. You know, I, um, at that time, he was selling just a few animals here and there. And, uh, you know, people like Paul Miles from the Boa Barn, um, Mark Lashock, uh, there was a, a guy named Dick Gurgeon. Uh, these guys were all, you know, picking out these animals. And they all wanted, he told me, they all wanted the bigger stuff, you know, because they were in a hurry to breed. You know, they wanted just to breed them, breed them, breed them. And, you know, I wasn't like that. I was, I was, I, you know, of course, because I wasn't, a, you know, in the reptile business. You know, it was my hobby. So, um, you know, I wanted the, the, the prettiest ones I could find. It didn't matter if they were two years old or, you know, three years old. Uh, I just was, was looking for the nicest, freshest, youngest, healthiest ones. And even with that, uh, you know, it, I was still paying anywhere from 1500 to $2,000 for these imports, fresh imports. And, of course, the ones he was getting rid of at the time were the problem animals. So, you know, several of them, oh, wow. you know, it was just like <laughs> throwing your money away, you know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. you know, there was, I, I ended up, you know, accumulating enough of them to where, you know, I, I had a nice, a nice group of them and uh, started producing those. And, um, you know, I was just amazed. I, I remember Mar actually Mark Lashock. Uh, beat me to having babies, of course, because he got, you know, he would get the bigger stuff, you know, and he had babies a year before me. And um, I remember when I had the babies, I was really kind of disappointed. There was almost no, there, in fact, some of the animals didn't have any stripe at all, but they looked totally different than baby northerns. They were burgundy. Baby northerns are either green or brick red, and we'll talk about this later, but... Uh, 
and I always thought people were out of their minds when they told me this, but uh, some of these old timers, but um, yellow. And I ended up producing yellow. This is another story, but I ended up producing yellow babies from patternless animals from Guyana. Um, but anyway, so I, I can remember these basins. Uh, I was, you know, I was still, still so stoked with them. You know, they were so different and so beautiful that I kept every one of them back. I had 14 babies. I had a huge batch of babies from this beautiful female that I had raised up. And, um, and I can remember uh, this gentleman talking to, to um, Mark LeShock, and uh, Mark was asking him if, if I was going to sell any of them. And he says, no, he's holding on to all of them. And Mark's like, he knows. And the guy's like, he knows what? He says, he knows they change. And, of course, I didn't. I was just, you know, I, I was so, you know, I just wasn't about to sell my first batch of babies. You know, I was just going to hang on to them. And I can remember watching in amazement as these things started to change and this t beautiful, perfect two-scale stripe just started looming up from, from nothing. It just, you know, it turned from burgundy to a peach color and then eventually to white. But I can remember watching it coming in and just being blown away that these things were getting stripes. You know, almost every one of them ended up with, uh, with these full stripes. I, I just couldn't believe it. That's crazy. So, Isn't that unusual? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I mean it's, it's pretty cool to hear, you know, some of the stories that, you know, a lot of people don't, don't realize kind of how these animals – uh, how it was working with these animals, you know, back, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Um, and it's kind of interesting to see. And you also, you know, one thing, you know, folks that out there that wonder, you know, um, you know, chondro babies are in comparison, any relation to the size of uh, emerald babies. And I mean, you'd be perfect to, to answer that, but uh, they're much more robust and much larger, aren't they? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. You wouldn't, you wouldn't dare probe a little baby chondra. You know, I wouldn't anyway. Um, I'm sure there's probably people that do, but uh, yeah, their baby chondras are, are super, super tiny. Yeah, compared to emeralds. Right. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, okay. So you've kind of explained how you got into these uh, emeralds, and you talked about you know some differences that you saw between the basins and the and and the northerns. Um, you mentioned you had had a little bit of, you know, as every, you know, reptile enthusiast does experience at some point, um, you know, anybody with a sizable collection has a few issues every once in a while. You know, you, it's kind of like you have that litter of babies, but it's it's the reward after a lot of trial, a lot of error, and probably some heartache. So Absolutely. you had mentioned that you had, ha you had had your fair share of struggles. Could you hit on that for a few minutes? Um, I can. It was, um, you know, of course, you know, as as I already mentioned, you know, the uh, the very first Amazon basins that uh, that were being let go of were, um, in a lot of cases, problematic. You know, um, you know, they a, a few of them would have, you know, what everybody referred to as regurgitation syndrome, uh, and then you know, I, I had already been through that with with some northerns. And um, I knew at this point, you know, that, that uh, you know, you might as well just save your money, you know, and just, and just put the animals down because, you know, once you try, you know, every, every, pretty much everything that, you know, you know of to kind of fix that, there's a lot of them just do not get better. And, um, but I had, I had that issue. 
But, uh, you know, the last thing that happened to me was, you know, a, um, a lot of stuff had, you know, started kind of trickling in toward the end, uh, maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago. There was quite a few animals coming in. Um, and uh, I had brought some new stuff into the collection. Um, and I had, I had, of course, everything went through a quarantine period. But uh, I started losing a couple snakes here and there, you know, and I would take them to the vet, and the vet would say, oh, good news, it, it, it was lymphoma, you know, it's not contagious, don't worry about it, you know, it's just a one, you know, just kind of, kind of pops up, you know. And uh, after about three or four of these, you know, necropsies that were showing these snakes, you know, had, had lymphoma issues, uh, I started talking to um, uh, some of the microbiologists at uh, the University of Florida. In fact, one of the, 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 the most well-known, Elliot Jacobson, uh, did a lot of research with, you know, the IBD um, back in, you know, 20-something years ago. Right. And um, they, uh, Elliot actually came out to my house and drew, we drew blood from like 30 different animals to try to figure out um, which animals might have this and which animals w didn't, which we were unsuccessful doing. We couldn't come up with any kind of a test. Um, so I ended up having to put my whole collection down. And you talk Jeez. about tough, and that's why you say when I dropped off the face of the earth, that's, that's why, because it, it was so hard for me to go through, uh, you know, watching at the time, which was, you know, the, probably the nicest collection in the world of, of emeralds. Uh, I had all kinds of different locality-specific animals from Guyana, and, um, you know, you, if you've seen the website, which actually I still have up, um, you know, there was just, you know, I had a, a beautiful variety of animals and watching these beautiful animals, you know, go down one by one, uh, was just, you know, almost more than I could deal with, you know? So I ended up putting the whole, I had to, I had no choice, you know, there, I couldn't identify which animals were infected, which animals weren't, but, uh, Elliot actually, uh, got some help with some other people as well. And what they came up with was that they they thought that this was a viral form of lymphoma, which they were extremely interested in studying, but um, they could not, it took them 20 years to get funding to study IBD, let's put it that way. So they just couldn't wow. act on it that quickly to study these things. Of course, I would donate, you know, I donated animals to them, but they couldn't, they couldn't literally put a lot of time into trying to study this stuff because they just, they had no funding for it. They, they offered, they told me that if I wanted to fund a grad student at $40,000 a year, they would put him on it. <laughs> but, you know, I couldn't afford to do that, you know. So, right. you know, to make a long and hard story short, I ended up having to put the whole collection down. That was probably eight years ago, and I just, I literally just withdrew from all my reptile friends, you know, I just, I didn't want to see another emerald, you know, I was just, I was so, you know, it was, it, it bothered me so bad, and, um, I can't imagine, you know, just, the, 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 oh, it was terrible, the financial and the, the emotional, you know, heartache behind losing that many animals, I mean, there's no way to recoup that financially, and when you have all that money that's been invested, you've, You've got all that sweat, you know, invested in, in bringing those animals and raising them up and kind of setting yourself and your animals apart from 
anyone else in the country or the world for that matter. I, I just, man, I just don't even know. <laughs> I couldn't relate. Well, for me, again, for me, it wasn't financially. It, it was, it was nothing because, um, you know, I had made, you know, I had, been, you know, been successful breeding these things for twenty something right. years, and you know, I long, long recouped, you know, you know, I had made quite a bit of, and even though this was never my job, um, you know, you can make really good money breeding, <laughs> as most people know, breeding high-end animals. And uh, so it wasn't the, it, obviously it was, it was the, the loss of, of that kind of income, but it wasn't like, you know, I had invested all this money and lost all this money. It was, uh, gotcha. it was more, it was more just the fact that, that, that I had lost this, collection which i had loved you know i'd put my whole soul into you know accumulating um that was right. the, that was the real hard part of course you know the 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 money i was making every year from babies you know that you know that uh that didn't help either but it was it was definitely the the love of the animals and that's that's why i did you know started the whole thing in the first place i, I never you know never treated it like a business uh, you know, I kept my job sure. and everything, and um, even Eddie, you know, right now, Eddie's, you know, got his own, you know, got his job, and he's, he pro- probably makes a lot more money selling babies than he does working at his job, but he, you know, he's kept his job, and, you know, he still does it for the love of it, you know. I think that's the important thing. You start doing it solely for financial gain. When that starts creeping into it, then you lose a lot of the the reason and rationale of why you started it in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, and I know what it's like. I mean, um, to some degree, you know, I know what it's like to put your heart and soul into your collection. I mean, that's pretty much you made it the way that it is. You've put all this blood, sweat, and tears and shared successes and failures, you know, and breeding trials and whatnot. And, you know, you clean day in, day out, you know, to make sure these animals are healthy and cared for and then just to lose it all at once or in a very short period. Um, I could totally understand. I think I would probably throw the towel in myself if if I had gone through that. I had a little bit of a situation kind of happen when I used to keep chondros exclusively. I lost about half of my chondros to something. Luckily, I was able to, to segregate um, and isolate the, the sick animals and make sure that the other ones were fine, and I sold them mm-hmm. off. And, you know, uh, but it wasn't near the amount that you lost, but it was – enough for me to go out and get away from chondros for seven years. I mean, I didn't even start getting back into chondros till this year. I just picked up a few, a few babies, but 2010 was when I completely pretty much got out. So, um, I, that's right. I'm just that's, saying, yeah, I, that's, I get, that's right I get about where my story mm-hmm. Yeah. I get where you're coming from. So, okay. So, I mean, you kind of popped up recently. Is there a reason behind that, or I mean, you got out well, and then you I, I, I now did. you're kind of back. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of, you know, my buddy Matt. Uh, everybody knows Matt Lear. You know, he he has um, uh, a lot of ball pythons, and and he kind of got me working with ball pythons a little bit. And I just, you know, I, I think they're a wonderful pet snake. I, I really think that, uh, you know, they're a really cool snake. But um, you know, I just wasn't. I, it just wasn't. I just wasn't into them, you know, and I, I ended up, uh, you know, selling, selling off what I had accumulated there and, uh, just realized, uh, you know, how much I missed working with those emeralds. 
And um, so just this year, like you, I uh, I called Eddie up and uh, I'm like, man, I gotta I gotta get me some babies this year. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked I picked up some babies this year. So you're back in it then? Yeah, I, mean, I am, it, uh, and loving you, it. You're you're not going to be breeding anything probably for a few years though, correct? Or are these older animals? Absolutely. No, no, no. These are babies. I, I'm, I'm four or five years away. Yeah, for sure. But, uh, but you know, it's, it's worth it. You know, I'm, I'm just enjoying. You know, I'm just enjoying these babies right now. I mean, I sunk a lot of money into these babies. These are really nice babies. <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, so, and again, it's, you know, I, I, I was telling people, um, all along, you know, if you, um, you know, if you breed, you know. $2,000 snakes, you're going to get $1,000 babies, you know, and if you breed, you know, $5,000 snakes, you're going to get $5,000 babies. I mean, the markings are, are genetic, you know, and, uh, you know, I didn't right. want to, I didn't, uh, again, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm getting up there in age. So, uh, you know, I didn't want to, you know, do two or three generations before I started producing some really cool stuff, you know, so, um, right. I sunk a lot of money getting some really nice babies, and uh, hopefully, you know, if I'm lucky enough to to, to produce them again, um, you know, the babies will be gorgeous, you know, and I'll be I'll be right back and uh, you know with some beautiful stock again, you know. Are you are you just wanting to work with basins alone? Or are you wanting to deal with basins and also get some some northerns as well? Well, I kind of I kind of don't know about that right now. I'm I'm so paranoid about um, you know picking up animals. You know, I know that uh, Eddie's collection's been closed for a long time. He hasn't brought anything in, and um, so you know I you know I picked up some stuff from him, and I'll probably um, I probably won't pick up anything else from anybody else for quite a while. And if I do. Um, it'll go through because see that, uh, that, that viral form of lymphoma that I had, uh, made it through a quarantine. I mean, those animals did not regurgitate, you know, you, the only way you could, you couldn't even really tell they were sick. They would just go off a feed. And if you know anything about emeralds, males, when, you know, during breeding season, they'll go off feed anyway. I had a male Suriname go off feed for nine months one year, uh, and then, wow. you know, came back on and everything was fine and actually didn't lose that much weight. But um, so the only, the only clue that you had was they would just stop eating. And on a few animals, I would notice um, like, like little raised scales, like, little, like a little patch, maybe a dime-sized patch here and there of scales that almost looked like they were slightly raised up, which is weird. But that wasn't even on all of them that, 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 were, that got sick. Um, so this was something that, you know, would take maybe a year, year and a half to, you know, I guess once the animal might have been exposed to show itself. So all I know is when, when, I, when I first started realizing that maybe I had a, a, an issue with something that was contagious that was spreading through my collection, I stopped everything. I stopped breeding. I stopped selling babies because the last thing I wanted to do was sell babies that possibly could have been infected, you know, to, to, and they would have, you know, crashed somebody else's collection. So the first thing I did was literally right. just stop everything. I stopped breeding. I stopped selling babies. Um, 
And, uh, again, it was just, you know, for that reason right there, you know, I'm just very leery about, uh, you know, uh, picking up anything. And, and if I do, pro- I would love to get some, uh, some Northerns. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing some, some stuff on Facebook. And, again, I've been out of it for, you know, eight years. I haven't had an emerald in my house for eight years. Um, so, I, you know, I, I really haven't even been following it. But I noticed there's quite a few people out there. Uh, and there's a few people that are producing some really nice northern stuff. I know Rico Walter had uh, some really nice northerns as well. Um, Miss Willie line. Uh, yep. yep. And I noticed there's uh, some guys out there that are keeping that line going, which I'm really happy to see because they're beautiful. Which incidentally, Miss Willie, and I, I, I'm 90% sure, is a Guyana animal. It's the same animals that I called a, at one time that was on my website a new locality animal. I actually believe gotcha. now that they probably come from a little area in Guyana. That's what I'm, I'm kind of looking at. Um, but there's some crazy stuff that comes out of Guyana. Uh, those patternless animals that we were getting out of Guyana were just spectacular. And I can remember, this is what I was telling you about the babies, breeding those uh, patternless uh, emeralds. Um, I came out one day, uh, and there's babies in the tank, and I'm and it was first thing in the morning and and I'm you know half asleep and I'm looking and I'm I'm rubbing my eyes I'm like what the heck is that, and there were two two or three yellow baby not not chondra lemon yellow but pretty darn yellow I mean definitely not green definitely not brick red these things were yellow, and I'm like I was just blown away because I I can remember you know some old timers telling me that they had produced you know they'd seen baby yellow. Uh, emeralds, and of course I thought they were crazy at this time because I had produced a many many litters of northerns and never seen anything you know yellow. They were either green or red, you know. And um, these things were absolutely crazy. I've got some photos. I'm not sure if they're on the website or not, but I've got some photos of these babies, and they were just beautiful. But there's some real interesting stuff that comes out of Guyana, and I, and I think that those animals, uh, what I was calling new localities, they look completely different. Um, are probably some area, probably southern Guyana, probably close to, uh, you know, basin territory. Right. Yeah, he, it, it's pretty crazy. There's a lot of stuff that comes out of there. There's so much variety. Um, and there's stuff down there. I mean, I, I live in the Amazon for right below um, the northern part of Brazil mostly, but um, the jungle is so dense there that there's there's places that we have not even explored yet, and there's no no telling what kind of micro localities there are that are sitting inside of this jungle that you know we haven't even tapped into. So um, I, I, it seems like there are a few folks that have kind of tried to put some emphasis in northerns um, since Rico passed away. And uh, I have a good friend out here in California, down in Southern California, I named uh, Ryan Walson, and he's got uh, a few of those Miss Willie animals. I think he's got a pair. Um, but anyway, he's also got some nice uh, high white um, or above average white northern. So, and I know that there's a few folks over on the East Coast that are doing the same thing. So hopefully, you know, with a little little bit of line breeding, a little bit of, you know, um, emphasis, not just putting a male with a female, you'll start seeing some higher caliber animals coming coming out. Um, well, I think they're so cool. I, 
Go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, it's interesting that you say that. It's, um, you know, with these Amazon basins that, that uh, came into the country, the stuff that, that came in 30-something years ago that uh, was, you know, uh, left over, like I was telling you, at the, at the National Zoo, um, that stuff, from what I understand, all came from around the western coast of South America, Peru, Ecuador, over there. Well, the new batches that were coming in, as far as I can put together, are coming in from the far eastern side of the continent. In fact, there's mm-hmm. a little island over there that uh, um, this gentleman was that, that was that was kind of pioneering this stuff, kind of pioneering bringing some of this stuff in. Um, there's a little island over there. I think it's, I, if I remember correctly, I think it's called like Ila Marajo or something like that. Uh, and the animals that were coming off of this island were almost patternless basins. They were beautiful, but they were this beautiful forest green. They had obviously they had the beautiful gold belly color, um, mm-hmm. but they were they were very weakly marked. But they were still beautiful. But again, just kind of a it's kind of like the green tree pythons with the locality stuff. You know, you get you get these microclimates that. Uh, the animals just kind of, you know, perpetuate the same colors and patterns, you know, over and over again. Did you tr- try to keep yours locality specific, or did you kind of cross some localities in the past, or are you strictly no, a locale I always, guy? Yeah, I was, I was kind of a locale with the, with person. The emeralds, I, I'm sorry. I, um, yeah, with the emeralds, I was. I, I tried to keep. I, I, I definitely kept that stuff pure. Um, I did goof around toward the end with um, a project. A- actually, after seeing um, – what animal did I see? Uh, oh, Noe, Noe Perez, one of my good friends, Noe Perez, produced uh, – bred a basin with a northern and got some absolutely screaming-looking stuff. They, they looked like really jazzed-up northerns. And uh, so I goofed around with that. I put one of my nicest male basins. Listen to this. This is hilarious. I put one of my nicest male basins on that beautiful new locality female that I had, which is, again, I I think is a Guyana female. And uh, the babies turned out uh, very average, actually below average. They They looked like regular northerns. It was just bizarre. I mean, you, you'd think wow. that this was going to be the <laughs> – you'd think that the babies would be just spectacular, and they were, and they were really weak. <laughs> but when I produced – So you didn't get the, the home run. Uh, I, no, not, not at all. But when I did produce the new localities, that, again, those, those patterns bred true. And there were two of those animals that came in together, and uh, the one ended up doing fine and beautiful, and um, – the other one, which was absolutely stunning, uh, ended up being, you know, having regurgitation syndrome and, uh, and, and, and ended up passing away. But um, the one actually uh, was gravid and ended up dropping babies for me, and the babies were spectacular. And that's what started wow. that new locality. Interesting. So coming from a guy who's bought quite a few imports, um, Obviously, there are no basin imports coming in, at least not any that we hear about. Um, but there are a lot of northerns being imported in still. What would you? What, what kind of advice would you give to other keepers out there that are now working with 
um, northerns. Um, you know, obviously for basins, you don't have a whole lot of options. You're going to get babies for the most part. But there are options to get different ages uh, of northerns, some wild-caught adults, some captive-born babies. I personally have always wanted to go with babies just because I like to know the animal. I've had some bad, some, you know, and it wasn't the breeder's fault, but I've just had some, some hiccups in buying adult animals because you really don't know. You know, it's just like a person. I look at it like they're already in their routine, and they've got years of being in that routine, and they've done really well for their prior keeper. Then when you switch that up with wherever you're at climate-wise and your routine, it doesn't necessarily mean that the animal's going to settle in. So I always just told myself, I'm not going to buy anything over a year old. What, what, would, what kind of advice would you give people that were looking at getting in, uh-huh. into northerns? Well, I would I would absolutely agree with that. I mean, it's it, why put yourself through that kind of uh, abuse? Basically, it's um, if you can get. Uh, I mean, it, it for me even starting out, I would have known better. I mean, just intuitively, I would have known better. If you can buy a beautiful baby, captive-born baby, raise it up yourself. You know, it's a, just a pure animal. Um, you know that that doesn't. You know that that you know. Make sure you know the the, the breeder. You know, um, but uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. You know that there there were so many pro- and northern emeralds were the worst. I mean, uh, the percentage of uh, the percentage that I saw of Amazon basins that would give you trouble as far as regurgitation syndrome was fairly low, but the northerns is, I mean, my goodness, you know, um, a lot higher. Um, now that first shipment again that came in through Tom, you know that that was those animals were clean. I didn't have any trouble at all with those animals. But you know after that, you know pick, trying to pick up an animal here or there, you know it was, um, you know I just had terrible luck with that, you know. And if you can buy, I mean you're going to spend a little bit more money for it, you know, for a nice captive-born animal. But uh, you know if you know the breeder, and uh, you know he runs a nice tight ship and you know clean clean collection and. You know, it's just a no-brainer. You, you you definitely want to go that route. So, yeah, I, that's kind of my thing. It's because you don't – a lot of times you buy an adult, you don't really know what you're getting. <laughs> so, right. Um, so, yeah, that, that's – I think that's something really important that we – gets overlooked a little bit is, you know, I can get, you know, an, uh, an adult import for, you know, half or – you know, you know, slightly cheaper than I could get a captive born and bred baby. Part of the fun for me is actually watching it grow. You know, I mean, Absolutely. there is some patience involved with that because it takes time for them to mature. But, I mean, that's the fun part is getting to see them change. You know that animal, and um, you kind of grow with the animal in some ways, I think. So, uh, for me, it's a, it's, a lot of, it's a lot more fun that way. It, it, it absolutely is. So, um, okay, so, you know, there's not a whole lot of people that are keeping emeralds. Um, I kind of wanted to pick your brain about, uh, we've got a little bit more time. I don't, I don't know what your time's like at any time. You can, you can stop me if you need to, to head out, but how do you feel? Well, I'm okay. Great. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jeff. I said, I'm okay on time. You feel about husbandry? Do you feel like, um, like, 
obviously different, more than one way to speak. But your wise, like for um, you know, not you're, you're starting to. Oh, okay. You're, you're starting Sorry. to break up a little bit. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, well, yeah. I can hear you now, but uh, you were starting to break okay. up a little bit there. But hus- as far as husbandry goes, um, yeah, you you definitely want to. Uh, and, and it's a shame, you're, like you said, that there's not more people keeping emeralds. And um, I don't really know why that is. Uh, I, I know that if you see, the pictures don't do these things just justice, and if you see some really nice quality animals. Uh, they're just, they're stunning. And, you know, I've even gone to these breeders, quote, breeders expos and seen, you know, obviously either fresh imports or animals that are just, you know, not cared for properly. And when an, when an emerald is not cared for properly, it just doesn't look good. It loses its sheen, just like with any animal pretty much, you know. Um, you need to keep these animals. Um, and they're super, let, let me, let me, state this right off the bat. These are super easy animals to keep. You have to meet two basic requirements, heat and humidity. You have to keep them warm, and you have to keep them fairly humid. And we're not talking 90% humidity. We're talking 60, 70, 75% humidity. That's, that's beautiful. But you keep the animals like that, and you, you have to have a little bit of ventilation in there. You can't have a sealed unit with all this humidity and condensation on the, on the glass all the time. You know, then you're going to get mold and bacteria starting to form. Um, but there, once you get that set up properly, they're, they're literally a no-brainer. You feed these things you know, once every couple of weeks. They go to the bathroom, if you're lucky, once a month. <laughs> um, and they're just, they're just super easy to keep. But you want to keep them, you know, during the day, you know, daytime highs, you want to keep them in the mid-80s, um, even upper 80s. I, you know, here in Florida, uh, it gets hot, you know. I mean, hot, hot, 96 degrees in the shade. You know, my snake room might be 91, you know, and, and you'll see animals. They'll be in, you know, kind of loose coils, you know, because it'll be hot, you know. But, uh, but they thrive in that, you know. And um, nighttime lows, you know, you can, uh, you know, Drop them into the into the upper 70s. Even during breeding, if you want to start cooling them down a little bit, they don't get quite as high during the day. Maybe you know, you still want to keep them in the mid 80s during the day, but maybe at night you want to drop them into the lower 70s. But um, you want to you want to you know decent humidity in there, you, and you want some decent ventilation in there. And I found that it's probably easier to control the whole room. I used to try to do it with within the cages. Um, but if you have a, a designated like arboreal room, which is obviously the best case scenario, um, you know I, I think it's easier just to try to, to maintain the, the temperature and the humidity in the whole room as opposed to in the cages. Um, but yeah, they're, they're super easy. They just you just you just you keep them warm and you keep them humid. And uh, man, if you can get them out in the sun every now and then, they just, they really do thrive over that, you know. I mean, I've been taking these little babies out and, and uh, sunning them on the, on the patio for, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes at a time. Not direct sun, but even filtered sun, you know. And, and uh, you can just see, they just, they just respond to that, you know. They just, the UV. And I guess for people who can't do that, uh, if you can even throw a little UV light on them, you know that would that would probably right. uh, really help them as well. Huh. So, yeah, I mean, 
do one thing I did want to ask you is did obviously you're talking about humidity. Um, did you ever use a mist system with yours, or did you just uh, mist them on your own, or do you are you against misting and you just wet the substrate? What do you what do you recommend? I think I think misting is a wonderful idea. I never I never had a misting system set up in there, but I think misting is a wonderful idea um, because the animals will definitely respond to that as well. They'll you, you know you can see them uh, drinking off their coils. You know a lot of times um, when they start kind of waking up and moving around. Um, in fact, you know Steve Volt, who's still working with emeralds, uh, has a beautiful collection now. He lives in Colorado where the humidity is like, I don't know, 17% or something most of the time. So uh, he set right. up a misting system for his animals, and uh, I can remember visiting him, and, and uh, you know, the misting system would go off, and we'd be walking around and, you know, see several animals, you know, actually kind of waking up and, and drinking water droplets right off of their bodies, you know. And so it's, it's definitely a... Um, uh, a benefit if you want to do that, especially if you live in a lower uh, humidity climate, uh, it's definitely definitely a, a benefit to do that. But um, you do have to kind of watch out. Um, people who are keeping these snakes in a lower humidity uh, environment and getting away with it, um, you can get into trouble by mis when an animal goes into shed specifically. Uh, if you wet him and he dries out, and then you wet him and he dries out, uh, you'll end up with terrible sheds. Um, mm -hmm. if, you, if they're in shed and you and you miss them, and, and and the humidity stays high, you're fine. But that that wet and then really dry, wet really dry, and that's that's no good for them. So, uh, you know, you just have to be kind of careful with that. But um, yeah, the misting the misting is definitely a, a nice way to go. Yeah, I, for me, with my Amazons uh, from similar uh, area uh, as the emeralds are from, um, I, you know, when I lived in Florida, it was really easy to keep the humidity up. I didn't really have to do a whole lot. Right. Whenever I actually moved out here to Northern California, the humidity is horrible out here. I mean, now, it's not as bad as like Arizona or New Mexico or some parts of Texas, I'm sure, but it's still pretty tough, and so I was having hard times with, with sheds, so I started looking at substrates, uh, stuff that would hold humidity much better, and I started trying right. to mix, um, like, mulch with cocoa fiber with sphagnum moss to try and find something that would just kind of hold humidity a little bit better um, so that I didn't mm -hmm. have to miss the animal all the time. And so um, I found doing that or just taking a cup of water and pouring it on the substrate to boost the humidity does help for me. Um, yeah. And I also soak soak rodents in water uh, whenever I thaw them out so that whenever I feed them, the animals are getting some of the hydration from, because I mean, ultimately that's, that's the crux of the issue as well as, you know, hydration whenever an animal's not shedding properly. So. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It's uh, in, in Florida, in Florida down here, it's really, they're really easy to keep, you know, green tree pythons, emeralds, they're, it's just really easy what I used to do when I had time uh, was, you know, I, I built these little, like, what I called jungle gyms, you know, and I'd, have, I'd, I'd move them out onto the patio. And, and when I was in cleaning cages and things, you know, I'd, I'd bring animals out and I'd put them in the sun and let them crawl around on these jungle gyms. And, uh, you know, you could, um, you could bring the animals out after a couple of meals. 
I would bring the animals out, let mm-hmm. them crawl around, and then after they warmed up real good, I'd just turn the sprinkler on and just and just kind of mist down on them, rain down on them. And literally, you'll get bowel movements within like 30 seconds, you know, especially if they're, if, if they're really warmed up from the sun. Uh, you know, the tail will come down and boom, you know, you'll get a bowel movement out in the yard. And that was a lot more fun for me than, than having to clean cages, you know. It was, it was really healthy right. for the animals, and, um, and it was a lot of fun, you know. Yeah, so um, now are you, are you switching anything up now that you've gotten back into it, or are you going to keep things kind of the same as you did years ago? Um, yeah, I'm not, you know, it, nothing was broke other than the fact that, that this, this virus got into my collection, you know, I mean, the way I was keeping right. everything, I was have you know, I was having phenomenal success with everything. Everything was healthy and, um, you know, everything was, was pretty much was reproducing. And, uh, so yeah, the, the, the husbandry wasn't the issue there. It was definitely, um, it was definitely this viral virus, whatever that, that, uh, that brought the collection down. So, yeah, I, I, I you know, it, I always said if it's not broke, don't fix it. You know, if you're if you're keeping animals and they're, oh, sure. and they're healthy, um, you know, don't don't change them up. You know, in fact, uh, Eddie told me just recently that he's had animals, um, you know, that he's even moved from one side of the room to the other uh, that might have stressed them out. You know, and then they broke with like a little respiratory infection or something. You know, so um, right. Yeah, if, it, if it's not broke, don't fix it for sure. You know, it's. Uh, in fact, I had another uh, person tell me that they were keeping that um, they had kept a northern for years and years in their house in a bedroom, uh, and the humidity was probably you know forty percent, and uh, never ever had a problem with him. That's. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I was surprised to hear that, but uh, again, you know, it's it's kind of like you know, the, once the animals kind of get in their routine and everything, you know, they kind of get used to a routine, you know. And uh, when I got these little babies too, you know, I kind of forced myself not to go in there all the time and look at them and mess with them and hold them, you know. I just, I literally just kind of, right. you know, uh, let them rest most of the time, and then you know, like I said, you know. If I can, if I can take twenty or thirty minutes and get them out on the patio and 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 uh, you know give them get them some sun and some fresh air, you know I th- I think they really respond to that, you know. Yeah, I I, I didn't ever offer life before, but I think I'm gonna start offering UV for my animals just because I think they do a lot better. Um, and there's nothing like scientific that's been proven about that, but it's, I just. For me, I like to enjoy them better. I think that I, I used to have this very simplistic idea of keeping everything. And I've kind of gotten back to, instead of putting it just a heat panel in there with, like, nothing else other than paper towels or substrate, I kind of want to go back into mm-hmm. a little bit more bioactive and plant some uh, live pothos in there and, you know, make sure I'm doing things to offer stimulus for the animal. Um I kind of like how they do it in over in Europe because they they are very anti the sterile cage and much more into you know what's going to create a natural stimuli and I and I'm not saying that that one way is better than the other I'm just saying for me personally I've kind of gotten to a place where I want to be able to enjoy the animals just as much as try and mimic 
as much as I can uh, their natural environment. Well, that's uh, that's definitely a good way to do it, um, and, and that will also help a lot with your humidity issue too. You know, if you have a potted plant in there, you have soil. That's something that's definitely going to you know um, slowly release the you know moisture into the air, and uh, plants are right. going to. In fact, that's you know with with my little baby tubs, you know I've got a, I've got a little you know couple sticks of pothos in uh, in those little baby tubs, you know, and I, I'm sure that it helps with the air quality in there, you know. Absolutely, yeah. And so, so what do you, what what size do you recommend for the enclosures? Well, um, I for uh, now obviously you know depending on your room and your space you know you could um, you know you could the bigger the better I would think. Um, right. But uh, if you, if you're planning on you know having a room full of these things, then obviously you know and most people don't have a you know just an unlimited amount of space to give them. Um, you definitely need something for for an adult female emerald because they get you know six plus feet. Um, you know, you're, you're definitely going to want, yeah, they're, uh, you know, I, I can't even, again, that's another thing too. Um, you know, these things are just the size of these things, you know, and the lateral compression of them. I mean, they're just, to me, they're just the ultimate tree snake, you know, but you definitely want to give them, um, I think my, some of my adult cages are, um, like 24 by 24 by 24. I think it's, that's, that's probably close to. To, to the size of, a, of an adult cage, and that's uh, and you know that's that's multiple layers within that cage, you know, because they're not just like a ball python where they're going to stay on the ground. You know, you've got perches in there right. at you know maybe two or three different levels, so that gives them a lot of a lot of space to kind of stretch out and crawl around. Um, but if you can afford to give them, you know, a three foot wide enclosure, you know that that would be that would be ideal as well, you know. Yeah. Um, I would think that basins require a little bit larger than the northerns, but I, I don't know. There's not, there's really not a lot of uh, size difference between them. Um, the basins, uh, you know, everybody for a long, you know, while, long time said that the basins are a more heavier bodied snake. And uh, right. that may well, but I mean, I you know, if if your northerns are healthy, you know, they're going to be they're going to be nice and heavy bodied as well. So there's not a lot of size difference. I think maybe the basins get a little longer. Um, I had uh, oh. I had a couple of, uh, of the original females that were you know probably pushing seven feet. I mean, they were just you know just like I was telling you, just really really long animals, but yet still. You know, when these things were out crawling around, you know, they were still um, incredibly laterally compressed. You know, which, which, you know, it's just a, it just, it, it looks like a giant vine snake almost. You know, I mean, it's just they're just they're just different. They're very very unique. There's nothing else out there like them. <laughs> did you, did you go through like, did you have a feeding day for your collection or? Were you kind of improving? Because I, I know that they're pretty sedentary, I would think, and since they don't use the bathroom very often, um, you have to kind of be smart about how often you feed. Um, Absolutely. I, I, this is stuff I've heard. I, I've never kept basins or, or northern, so I'm speaking in complete ignorance here. <laughs> 
No, you do. You definitely do. Um, there's people that get away with, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen people, you know, that feed a lot. Um, in fact, Matt brought over this animal one time that was a, a female that he had kept in a big outdoor uh, uh, enclosure in his yard, and he would feed that snake like once a week. And, of course, you know, that snake wow. got rained on, the sprinklers hit it, so it was regular. But if you try to do that with a snake in a, in a room, you're going to have a major problem. These snakes are, like you said, their metabolism is very slow. Um, you, know, you, can, it, you know, you can feed them. Uh, I used to feed, uh, you know, a second food item before I would get a bowel movement, but I would almost never give them a third food item before I get a bowel movement. And the easiest way to do that, again, like I would tell you is, uh, you know, I would just take them outside, you know, let them, let them start crawling around and then turn the sprinkler on them. And literally within like 30 seconds, I'd get a bowel movement from them. But, um, yeah, you definitely want to watch that. You can overfeed these guys. And, uh, and then if you, you know, if they get backed up, um, you know, they'll start getting real heavy down there by the vent. And uh, that could lead to some problems as well with like, you know, these big poochy kind of vents that down there. Um, so you definitely right. want to, um, you know, feed pretty much. If you stick to kind of a one meal, one one bowel movement, you know, you can't go wrong. But as your animals get a little bit bigger, you know, you can you can get away with like a second food item. Um, and then, but but definitely after that, you know, after you know, they're they're digest that food item, which takes them, you know, a good five six days before you know they're really, in my opinion, you know you're able to kind of move them around and really start handling them. I leave them, I leave them alone completely for the first four or five days after they've eaten. But after that, you can start right. slow, you know, easily kind of crawling them and holding them and, and stuff like that. Again, these are not snakes that you're going to wrap around your neck and go sit down and watch TV with. You know, these are snakes that oh, no. they're easily handleable, but, you know, you, you can take them out and enjoy them and handle them, let them crawl around outside on a little low tree that you can, you know, manage them with or you know, that's, that's where you, they really come alive, and that's when you really enjoy them. You know, you can handle them. They're very easily handleable. But, um, you know, even the northerns, you know, even those, even those crazy northerns, I only had one northern that, uh, was, was, uh, that, that I had to watch uh, very carefully every time I handled her. But even that one, as nasty as it was, once she got out in the sun and started crawling around and, you know, she'd crawl down off the jungle gym if she got too warm and start crawling around, I could literally go out there, pick her up, and hold her like an Amazon base and walk her back in uh, to, the, to her cage and put her back in her cage with no issue at all. So, you, you know, you, you kind of learn. It's like anything else, you know, when you work with something. You kind of learn what you can get away with, what you can't, you know. In fact, it was a funny story right. when I, you know, first started keeping these guys. Um, my male, Northern, it, literally my first couple of animals, I called him Bad Mood. That was his nickname, Bad Mood. But I would open the cage door, and he'd kind of come up to me. You know, he'd kind of come way out of the cage, you know, with his head bobbing and stuff. And I thought he was just being kind of curious, you know, but he was actually, uh, you know, uh, it was a breeding, it was a breeding uh, thing he was he was you know telling me he was getting ready to kick my butt <laughs> basically and i just thought he was being curious you know but uh, so you kind of get to you kind of get to know you know animals that the more you work with them and um you know but it's it's definitely a, a, a little bit of a learning curve but uh it, it's it's all in the way you handle them you know you can you can 
you, you're not like I said, you're not going to tame them down if you've got a if you've got a kind of a nasty northern. You can you can figure out a way to work with that animal and enjoy it and and not even you know get bit or not. Uh, you know I can count on probably one hand the the bad bites I've taken from emeralds in 20 something years, 25 years. Um, even the northern, and I had a lot of northerns, you know. Um, the babies sometimes can be a little bit nippy, but even them, you know, they, they kind of get used to the routine. Okay, he's going to open my tub. He's going to miss me down, you know. If I'm out on the patio, I'm going to start crawling around. He'll pick me up, you know. And they just kind of get used to you, you know. It's it's uh, right. It's, it's pretty neat. You can handle them, even the northerns. You can you can handle them, but but it's not again. It's not a not a ball python where you're going to you know put it in your lap and go watch TV. You know, you're just not. They're just not that way. Yeah. That's kind of that's kind of been my thoughts. Um, like you know, uh, similar to the northerns, and not so much the basins, but you know, I, I keep a lot of Amazon tree boas, and they have such a bad rep. But you know, I only have one animal that really is going to take a swipe at me if I take it out. You know, they're all pretty much. I mean, they let you know when they're done with uh, with you handling them, just like any other animal will. You know, you've had a cat too long until the cat takes a swipe at you. They let you know they're done. It's really no different when a snake, I mean, snake doesn't have claws to swipe at you, but, you know, they're going to, they're going to use what they have to let you know, like they're either going to try and get away from you when they're done with you messing around with them, or they're going to bite you. Just kind of let you know, Hey, back off. I'm done being, being held. Um, But my Amazons even are, are really, really laid back animals. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of, it's like anything else. You know, and and one thing you know, people do a lot is they get bit, and what do they do? They put it down. Well, that doesn't necessarily do anything other than tell the snake that, um, you know, when I do this, this will happen. Um, and you kind of have to force yourself not to, not to do that. It'll, at least with the babies, anyway. Yeah, yeah. You 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 learn you learn their uh, their mannerisms. You know, like. Um... Like I've been holding one before, and uh, you know when they when they kind of cock their head and they put their nose right up against you and they start wiggling their head, <laughs> they're figuring out the best way to bite you. <laughs> right. And uh, you kind of you kind of figure that out. I, I know that one of the worst bites I ever had was uh, I had a female out on the on the jungle gym and I was trying to get her to go to the bathroom and I was just losing my patience with the hose and I was literally at this point just just pounding water down on top of her with the hose you know and 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 I couldn't get her to go so I put her down and I I take her off the jungle gym and I'm reaching over to get the other and I'm holding this snake you know in one hand and I'm re- and I'm reaching over and I'm not even paying a bit of attention to her and I'm and I'm trying to get the other one off the jungle gym and all of a sudden, man, I just feel what's like a bolt of electricity through my arm. She just, you know, must have just put her nose right up against my wrist, and then all of a sudden just, you know, just chomped in. Just nailed it. And, uh, oh, my gosh, that was one of the worst fights I ever had. It turned my whole forearm just black and blue. But, uh, yeah. They have some long teeth. Oh, my, like I said, they're uh, – yeah, but that's what makes them so cool too. When I, like I said, when I when I first saw that one eat, and how they work their jaws, you know, and they've got those giant teeth, top and bottom, you know, at, at the very front of their mouth, and uh, you know, you watch them, it's almost like rattlesnake fangs. You know, they'll reach up with that bottom jaw and that bottom tooth, you know, and they'll grab the food item, and then they'll take the other side and they'll reach up, you know, and grab that, and 
it, they're just amazing, amazing animals, you know. But yeah, they when they bite, there is not, there's probably no other non-venomous bite that's as painful as that. I would think. Do you think their teeth are that long because they they their primary food source in the wild is birds, or? I, I mean, do. I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here. I do. I, I absolutely do think that's how they evolved with these gigantic teeth. Yeah, they had to. Um, uh, and, and I think what they found, interesting enough, was the, the majority of their food items, even in the wild, it, are, are not birds. Although they do eat quite a few birds, is, is rodents still. Um, but, yeah, I do. I think that they evolved with these giant teeth because, um, you know, to penetrate the plumage of birds. And uh, also, if you ever notice, they'll, sometimes when, when you open the, even a cage and, and, and it's at night, I feed only at night. Uh, because you never want to go into a cage during the day to clean it or take the animal out and get some kind of feeding response bite. That's just, it's just not good. So, you know, it's the right. natural instinct to hunt at night. So that's when I feed everything is after dark. Uh, leave a little tiny light on in the room. Um, but you can see sometimes you'll open these cages, you'll open the doors, and they'll come flying out and not just one strike, but they'll sit there and wave their head around with their mouth wide open. And and you and and, hmm. and I know that's instinctively, uh, you know, to catch. Um, I've seen I've seen I've, I've seen animals uh, do that at the at the uh, entrance to caves for for like to catch bats as they come out, and they'll literally just just open their mouth and wave it around in the air until something snags on their teeth. And I think that's how, why they evolved these giant teeth as well to. Uh, you know, because like you said, they do eat quite a few birds in the wild, although they do eat a lot of rodents as well. So interesting. They're such a unique snake. Um, you know, I I haven't worked with them before, but they've been on my short list for a long time. Do you see yourself branching you out and one. working? I'm sorry. I said you should get oh, one. <laughs> oh, I know. I I've got a friend. My friend Ryan down in Southern California. He's he's got some nice northern um, that he is. Kind of, I've kind of been talking with him about. He's got some some females that are pretty that are, I I think have ovulated already, but um, they're I they're nice above average white northern. So um, I may have to I may have to get one. <laughs> yeah, they you, but, you should you should definitely. I mean, you've worked with green tree pythons before, and you and you like your Amazon. And uh, it's definitely a logical pro- progression, you know. You definitely, uh, you definitely should try one. But that's that's the way to go, you know. Get one from, uh, you know, get a nice little captive-born baby, and uh, you know you can't go wrong. Set it up properly, and you already know the way to set it up. You know, if you're keeping if you're keeping green tree pythons out there healthy, and you're keeping Amazon tree boas healthy, you can keep an emerald the same way. In fact, my uh, my my room had both animals in it, you know, at the same time. And, and, you know, they both require the same amount of uh, the same, the same conditions. Um, right. And uh, it's, it's, it's definitely a logical progression. You know, you definitely want to get one of these things. Of course, you know, I got to warn you, you may, you know, start selling more Amazons to make room for more emeralds. <laughs> <laughs> that, that may happen and that's okay. Um, the key is just being happy. So uh, wherever yeah, that takes absolutely. you, you know, that's, that's, that's all that matters. 
So, well, that's cool. Well, yeah. you know, I and the other and the other thing and the other thing is, don't ever call them Emmys. I, I, that's like one of my pet peeves. Oh, you know, a lot of people, you know, say, you know, they they shorten them up and they say Emmys. You know, and I just, I just, I can't stand that. So, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even like calling my Amazon uh, tree boas. I, I, some people call them ATVs, and some people call emeralds ATVs. I hate that. I'd rather just call them yeah. Amazons or call them emeralds or call them basins, call them northerns or call them by the scientific, you know, name, caninus, yeah. you yeah. know. I, or I, I call I do call my Hortolanus forties sometimes. I refer to them as forties, but um, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, that's uh, just not good. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yep. So, um, is there is there so? I guess kind of from what you're saying, there's no other species that you would ever want to work with. It's pretty much just these. They are well, I, I, I don't know about that, but you. Um, you know, I've got, uh, you know, I've got, um, I'm fortunate enough to where, you know, I actually have a, a separate uh, facility for my animals now, and, um, you know, I've got two rooms out there, so, you know, it's not, it's not out of the question that I would ever, you know, I, you know, I'm, I might one day decide I want to get some, you know, some really different looking stuff, like either, like you said, some northerns, some nice northerns, um, you know, or maybe even, you know, I'm seeing what some of these guys are, are doing with some of these green tree pythons now, you know, I've got a lot of buddies that, uh, you know, are still, you know, out there keeping these things, um, and just, you know, I see some, you know, fantastic looking stuff, you know, being produced now, you know. Um, so, you know, there, there's always a chance that I might pick up a few of those down the road as well. But, uh, you know, like I said, I, I uh, you know, you, if, 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 you, if you pull a nice Amazon basin out, I mean, you could, you could put that up against anything. I mean, I, in my opinion, there's just, there's just nothing out there that, that, that uh, holds a candle to a beautiful Amazon Basin Emerald, you know. Just, there's just nothing out right. there. And, I, and don't get me wrong, I love this other stuff. You know, I love Boland's pythons. I love the, the green trees and stuff. But uh, the one thing about the green trees, I'll say, they, you know, they just don't have that iridescence to them, you know. They just... They, you, you take them out in the sun, and they just don't—they just don't shine the way that, that that emeralds do. And and another thing, they don't have that textured feel to them. You know, the especially the Amazon basins. If you've ever held a baby Amazon basin in your hand, it's like it's almost like a muscular piece of velvet. They just literally melt. They're so muscular and and so soft that they almost just mold around your fingertips. I mean, it's just, I can't hardly describe it to you. It's just, it's, you'd have to, you know, see it or feel it to, to experience it. But uh, they're just different, you know. They're just, they're just so different, you know. Yeah, well, I, yeah, you definitely, my, it's not like it took a lot to pique my interest, but you definitely did it. <laughs> they're... <laughs> It, they're, they're on my radar. They have been for a long time. So I'm assuming it, you know, I know me and I know that I'll probably have to pull the trigger at some point. At least just yeah, try one sure. out and see if it works for me. Well, cool. And that's I didn't the, have a whole that's lot else. That's the thing too. You know, it's, the, I was just going to say, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's unfortunate that there's not more people out there working with them because, um, you know, and I think the people out there, you know, from what I can tell that are still work, you know, that are working with them, 
you know, they love it, you know. They, uh, it, it's a shame that you don't see more really nice specimens at, like, shows where, where people oh, who don't, know. don't know anything about them can see them, you know. I mean, there's plenty of ball pythons for you to see and look at and hold, but, you know, you almost never see any beautiful, nice captive-born uh, emeralds, you know, at these shows, you know. Right. At least the, the few that I've been to lately, you know, you just – you just don't hardly see sure. anything like that. Yep. It, it's, especially at like the local show here. I mean, it's a pretty big show. It, it rivals Daytona and some, I think it's probably just a little bit smaller than the, the Daytona show, the the Sacramento mm-hmm. show. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, you, there's no, there's no emeralds. There's very few Amazon tree boas. So um, you get a couple imported Amazon tree boas in there, but nobody has any of the captive born um, stuff and, and especially emerald tree boas with the, with the northerns and, and the basins. Yeah, you don't you don't see any of those. So um, it would be really cool to have a vendor actually vend that show and just like kind of be a fly on the wall and just see what people say whenever they walk past the table. It'd probably blow some people's minds. They'd wonder, oh, what there are snakes that look like this. Well, I think I think as well the um, you know with the uh, with the ball python prices the way they have come down, um, there's not as many people jumping on the ball python bandwagon to you know for for income purposes you know, and when and when, right. when it gets back to the point where people are keeping stuff that they like and stuff that they think is interesting, not to mention the fact that you're never going to mass produce these Amazon. You're never going to mass produce emeralds. For one thing, you know, they're not egg layers. They're live bears, which is a benefit to me and all, you know, complete benefit all in its own. But uh, you know, so they, they gestate. You, you can't breed them every year. You don't want to breed your females every year. The, the females are bred every other year it takes four years minimum to grow a female up to breeding size, more like five if you're not pushing them. Um, so you're never going to mass produce these things. And therefore the prices have still, from what I can tell, I mean, you know, they've gone up for the really, you know, for the really high quality stuff. You know, the prices have been firm for 20 years on these things, you know, and, and, have, and have done nothing but go up. And so I think what you're going to see people that, you know, that, that people that are not into it for the money, just for the money, you, when you start keeping things that you like, more people – I've already seen just in the last couple of years, I've already seen a, a, a much bigger variety of animals at some of these shows. It's not just ball python shows anymore, you know. You know, every table mm-hmm. – there's still a lot of ball pythons out there, don't get me wrong, but you're starting to see a lot more different monitors, you know, the tree monitors that people are getting into. Right. And, uh, of course, anybody who loves tree monitors are going to love emeralds or green tree pythons, you know. It's just the same. You're right up yeah. the same alley there, you know. But you're going to start seeing a lot more. What's that? Go ahead. I was going to say once an arboreal, oh, that's oh, always an arboreal. That. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That that was it. I, well, that's I didn't what I had, I yeah. didn't mean to. What's up? I said that's all I had. If you if you if you had some more questions or, yeah. or anything or yeah, I, you know I didn't have anything else that I really wanted to cover. I just kind of wanted to pick your brain on how you got into them and just get your thoughts on where you're at now and what you you know what would 
kind of drove your passion of working with Emerald Tree Bowls, you know, back years ago, and you've covered all that. Mm-hmm. So um, I I really appreciate you coming on the show. And um, I would typically tell folks, you know, if you want to reach out, you know, and um, get a baby from whoever the guest is, you can reach out. But since you're not expecting anything for a long time, I mean, I assume, you know, you're not going to have any babies available for for no, years, but for you, but uh, yeah, for for years for sure. But if anybody wants to pick your brain and ask you some questions, you know, just for so that they can keep their animals better, do you have a preferred uh, method of contact for that? Um, no, no, I've actually, you know, I've got a, um, you know, I got a little Facebook page. You know, I don't spend a lot of time on it like, uh, you know, some people do. You can tell. <laughs> But, um, you know, you can, you know, reach out through, you know, Messenger, you know, Um, you can message me, Um, uh, you know, whatever, you know, my, my website is still up. It's, uh, it's not current, but it's still up. You can go if you, if they want to go look at, um, you know, what I used to do, what I used to keep. Um, It's boas.net, B-O-A-S, easy to remember, boas.net. And, um they can go check that out and, uh, you know, shoot me an email or message me and I'll be happy, you know, to, uh, you know, to answer any questions or something, you know. Great. Yeah. And for anyone that's listening, his website is great. There's so much knowledge uh, that he's kind of put out there. So um, I especially like your, your, your facility uh, pages. I used to just stare at them. Um, And some of the, (laughs) some of the, um, new locality and, and some of those, the, like you had some black northern animals that just yeah. blew me yeah. away. They were they were so. gorgeous. They were. You know what? That was that was an interesting story right there. I got those uh, on, on one of my trips to the national zoo. Um, we went and saw Trooper, and uh, he took us, you know, back back uh, off exhibit, and they had this pair of black northerns up there. And they were just, I mean, just like nothing I've ever seen. And um, so we ended up working out a deal for those. And uh, unfortunately, they weren't, um, they weren't viable. The female, uh, I, ju- I just could never get them to breed. The female, you know, every year she kind of broke with a respiratory. And, uh, you know, when you keep them off exhibit like that, you just can't keep them very well, you know. They were just in 10-gallon aquariums standing up on their end and, uh you know, they just were, you know, they just weren't uh, viable snakes. I was never able to breed them. But, man, that male was absolutely stunning. And, um, you know, there's, there's, they're just so, such interesting uh, color morphs out there, you know. And you, you can still see that on the website. You know, it's up. In fact, Eddie was, was joking around. He, was, he, was, uh, he says, I'm glad you kept your website up all these years because he would refer back to it. Uh, for certain bloodlines, you know, Eddie, you know, picked up a lot of the, the bloodlines from me, you know, that diamond bloodline when he produced those, those beautiful diamond babies, you know, that, that, that diamond baby was actually passed over that, that the one that started all of that was a little baby diamond animal about a year and a half old. Uh, and, and this gentleman who I haven't mentioned, um, uh, told me that a very well-known keeper was at the, his place and picked that animal up, looked at it, and threw it back in the cage. And, 
I ended up getting that animal was blown away that it was still, you know, still there after that uh, because it was just completely, I mean, it just had these giant diamonds down its back, you know, and um, giant lateral markings. I mean, the size of dimes, you know, just huge ladder for on a little snake, you know, and um, that, that animal started it all, started that diamond. Those diamonds were all genetic. You know, if you have an animal that has like a nice racing stripe, you know, that's genetic. You know, you'll get some variations in the batch, but they're really gen- uh, genetic. And, um, you know, it produced all those beautiful diamond babies. And thank God that Eddie, uh, you know, got one of my nicest males. Uh, there were two males. I kept one and, and, and he got the other one. And, um, you know, what he's done with those diamond animals is amazing. You know, I mean, I've been out of it for, you know, like I said, like eight years. That's, that's you know, basically almost two generations that he's, you know, advanced that. You know, and, and that's another thing. You, you get a couple of snakes and you breed them, and there's always going to be one or two animals that are nicer than the parents. You're going to get a lot of variation in, 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 that, in those markings. But there's going to be one or two that are nicer than the parents, and he's taken that to the next level. And the and the, and that one diamond baby that he produced, that he's uh, he was joking around on Facebook. He said, "My this is my lifetime achievement award." You probably seen it. I mean, it literally yeah, it has diamonds all the way up to the back of the head. You know, I yeah. mean, it's just it's just amazing. And uh, but it's he but he was laughing. He was crazy. like, "Yeah, I'm glad you had." Yeah, it is. And that he was, you know, he's like, I'm glad that you left that website up all over all these years because I've, you know, I've been able to refer back to all these bloodlines. You know, he 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 had uh, he had just done emeralds. Of course, you know, like I said, it was it was just a very few people who were, who who got those first. You know, was lucky enough to know this guy that to got that got these first few Amazon basins in the country. And uh, so Eddie ended up getting most of his stuff from me. All those bloodlines. And, uh, you know, he's just run with it from there. And, uh, of course, the, the Noel stuff, the frosted stuff, that came from a Miles animal. And um, so, you know, those, a lot of those bloodlines are, you know, still going, and Eddie's, Eddie's been doing a great job, you know, breeding that stuff and, and taking it to the next level, you know. And I'm just, you know, I, I look at that sna- those snakes that he's produced, I'm just like, you know, you've got to be kidding me, you know. And uh, yeah. It's funny, even even some of those um, conjure bloodlines are still going on today. I see those uh, those yellow snakes with the olive on it, you know, and what they call the mustards, those mustard conjures. That was that was from that that was from that high yellow animal bred to a solid green animal produced those mustards. That was those were the first mustards. I thought they were. I don't want to make it conjure people mad, but I thought they were pretty ugly myself. You know, it kind of muted out the green, and they just turned out to be kind of a yellow green, and, they, and everybody kind of dubbed them mustards. And uh, I thought they were fairly ugly myself, but a lot of people like them, you know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, they never they never really did a whole lot for me either, but there are a lot of people out there that really do kind of like those mustards. I, I kind of like the bright yellow, like the Kofi Al yellows and the yellows yeah. that come from some of these high yellow uh, stuff. But, um, yeah, well, that's, you know, it's, it's, I think the important thing is to, you know, if you're going to line breed, make sure you, you try and outcross where you can to try and uh, add some new genes in there um, to help reinforce it so that you're not just producing 
tons and tons of inbred animals. But, it, you know, persistence is the one that's going to win the win the race, I think. You know, and I think Ed Marino is a perfect example of that because he's really stuck with that line and improving generation after generation. I mean, those animals didn't come in looking like that. You know, that's all from him no, taking it no. and being persistent with it. So, Yeah, that's true. Well, yeah. well, Tony, that's really that's really all I had. Um, you know, I'm sure we could probably talk for hours, but uh, I want to let you uh, go ahead and get back to whatever it is that you have to do. And, um, you know, I, hopefully we can stay in touch because there might be some time here in the near future that I'm picking your brain about a few things. So, um, sure. Absolutely. Jay. Anyway, anyway, for anybody that's listening, that's Tony Nikolai. Um, if you guys want to reach out to him, you can reach out to him via uh, private messenger on Facebook. Um, or you can go to his website at boas.net and, uh, you know, sit down with a beer or whatnot and, and start reading because there's a lot of information on it. Tony, thanks for coming on. And it was a, a real pleasure to have you on the show and especially someone with as much experience as you have and to kind of hear how it all started. Uh, that was a real treat. So uh, thanks for coming on and you have a good night. I enjoyed it, Jeff. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk soon. Oh, okay. Take care, Tony. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That was Tony Nikolai. Um, you know, you guys, thanks for listening to Kralis Radio. Uh, remember, regardless of the size of your collection, Rich over at Reptile Basics will get you squared away. Whether it's five reptiles or 500, RBI has what you need. Check them out on Facebook or on the web at www.reptilebasics.com. All right, you guys. You guys have a good one, and uh, we'll be back uh, here in a few weeks, and we'll be talking Amazon tree bullets. Thanks. Bye-bye.